This is the Zen Nova Scotia podcast with talks by Cone Friends. If you would like to support and be part of our community, you can start by visiting zennovascotia.com. I brought a poem today from a monk named Daichi. We usually call him Daichi Zenji. He was born about 600 years ago. He's just a couple generations removed from Dogen. And I feel a a connection with him because the temple where he trained as a boy was very near where I lived in Japan, and I trained at a temple that he founded in the mountains. So the the landscapes that I would look at for months uh, from the top of this mountain were the same landscapes that he looked at while he wrote some of these poems. And the, the bugs that tried to eat me were the same kinds of bugs that tried to eat him. He's an interesting character. He, like Dogen, uh, went to China at one point seeking more answers and came back uh, with a, a an interest in literature. So he produced a lot of poetry. And there was a time when he had a, a more important place in the tradition and young monks were expected to memorize some of his poems in the same way that I was expected to memorize poems in junior high school. And he's become a little bit more obscure, but he's, he's worthy of our attention. And this, this poem is called Buddha's Birthday. Uh, and I bring it today because it's easy to forget that, you know, we, we often celebrate the Buddha's birthday in April or May. But from one point of view, that's not the Buddha's birthday. That's Siddhartha's birthday. The Buddha was born on the day that we started calling him the Buddha. I'll read you the poem. This land, a fortress of 84,000 delusions, spear and shield not moving, peace comes. That old thief, the one called Gautama, sees him. With Yunmen's staff, do not act in vain. This land, a fortress of 84,000 delusions. This land refers to this land, but it specifically refers to uh, the land called Jambudvipa, which in Buddhist cosmology is the circle of the earth is divided into three separate levels. There is the Kamadatu, the Rupadatu, and the Arupyadatu. These are the desire realm, the form realm, and the formless realm. Within the desire realm, there is this mountain I've talked about called Mount Sumeru, which is at the center of the world. It's the tallest mountain in the world. And around Mount Sumeru are these four lands. So if we imagine, if we were looking from the sky, that Sumeru is, is cut like a, like a pizza into four pieces. There are these, these three wedges. They're all wedge-shaped. and Four wedges, sorry. And one of those wedges is called Jambudvipa. 
And this is where human beings live. And then the other three wedges are for other types of beings, and you can't go there ever. <laughs> It's, I'm not sure what it looks like at the border. <laughs> between Jambudvipa and one of these other places, but it's totally off limits. And I think the idea is that you would never even bump into it. You would, you would never find your way past this space. And in the middle of Jambudvipa is what's called a jambu tree. It's a, the best translation I could find was a rose apple tree. And it's in the very center, and it's huge. And that marks not the center of the world, but the center of, of our world. So he's, he's referencing in the, in the poem the way that he, he wrote it in Chinese, that this is this land. It's the only place, uh, as we've discussed, where a being may become enlightened. Right? That the human realm is, is a unique opportunity, but also a uniquely confused opportunity. It's, it's only in human form according to this cosmology, that we can, even as deluded beings, have the opportunity to recognize what goes beyond delusion. In the other realms, it's, you're just simply too trapped to see outside of, of your own existence. So he says, this land, a fortress of 84,000 delusions. And I, I like that he calls it this because... First, this term 84,000, this is used a lot throughout Buddhism, but, but I like the idea that we've, we've locked ourselves off from the rest of the universe, right? We've, the walls around this land are built of delusion so that we can't see outside and nothing else can come in. This is where we live. Spear and shield not moving, peace comes. When I was in maybe fourth grade, uh, my friend Doug challenged me to a fight. He wanted to fight me behind the school after school. And like all, my, all the boys in my class, at some point during elementary school, he was my best friend. But then at other times, he was my enemy. Right. And on this day, he was my enemy. And I have no idea why. I don't remember. But somehow I insulted his honor. And, and for whatever reason, because I'm sure we had had disagreements before, on this day, he decided that we were going to fight. We were going to physically fight. And he told everybody we were going to fight. And we were supposed to meet behind the school. I'd never fought anybody before. And I went behind the school, and he stood there maybe 15 feet away from me. And he said, come on! And I said, I, no. I said, you, you invited me to fight. If you want to fight, you have to fight. I'm not going to attack you. That's ridiculous. And he said, come on! And the, our other friends, who were very mature, <laughs> are chanting, you know, fight, fight, fight. And, and I said, no. I, I said, if you want to fight, you have to fight. And this goes on and on and on, maybe 20 minutes, 30 minutes, of just this, this standoff of him saying, let's fight. And me saying, 
okay, <laughs> but you have to start it. And finally, we just got tired and we got bored and everybody went home. That was my big fight. That was my one big fight in school. I don't know if I won or lost, but that's what I think of when I read this line. Spear and shield not moving, peace comes. When we sit in Zazen, that's a kind of action, and I like to describe it as action, that we're actively doing something. But we can also understand it as restraint. Right? Because when we sit, there are a million other things we could be doing, and we're not doing them. We're not putting our energy into those actions. We're putting our energy into this one. Sometimes all it takes is for us to stay where we are. And sometimes staying where we are takes everything that we have. To not say that thing. To not attack. To not grip that spear. to not leave or to not charge in. When the, speeled, when the shield and the spear just simply don't move, then we can see peace. And so this is coming after this line about the 84,000 delusions, right? Daichi Zenji is giving us a little bit of a hint about how we might approach this fortress. And he's suggesting that we don't necessarily have to attack. And then he changes gears. That old thief, the one called Gautama, sees him. So Gautama is the Buddha, and the, and the Buddha here is a trickster. This, this is the shift where this becomes a really Zen poem. There's a lot in the literature of Zen that, that suggests not that we should just bow down to the Buddha, or that we should just honor the Buddha, or that we should just listen to the Buddha, but that we should wrestle with the Buddha. When he says that old thief, when he calls him a trickster, this is usually a reference to the flower sermon, in which the Buddha goes out in front of all of his followers, and he just lifts up a flower and says nothing. And only Mahakashapa understands that communication and smiles. He's the only one. He doesn't just come out and say it. <laughs> he makes it a little bit harder. <laughs> this is referred to as the Buddha's trick. 
he pulls out the rug from everybody. All these people who had been memorizing every word he said, and memorizing all the lists of the 16 this and the 4 this and the 8 this and the 32 this, and then he holds up a flower, and that's his critical moment. And so when Daichi says this about the Buddha, he's, he's kind of shaking his fist at the Buddha. What the Buddha asked of his students was so simple, but it was much, much, much more difficult than they thought. It was simple, but it wasn't easy. And what was hard for those students then is exactly what is hard for us now, and it's what was hard for Daichi. We want this communication and we want this clarity. But we have to engage. We can sit here forever. It's very complicated, this line between what Daichi is offering us of not moving, and at the same time, tackling. We have all these images. We have the image of the pearl beneath the the dragon's chin, right? That the black pearl that the dragon carries is realization. And you have to grab it. The dragon will never, never, never come and drop it in your lap. You have to take it from him. Uh, another teacher wrote very beautifully about how we have to knock down the gates. You don't stand outside the gate and wait for something to happen. This practice doesn't look like that, but he's asking for it to feel like that. We hear this phrase over and over that we we lock eyebrows with the ancestors. We should be that intimate. We should be that close and that aggressive. So that when you see that teacher, you grab that teacher and you pull them this close and you don't let go. It's like the Buddha is a criminal. And then he has this last line that's very disturbing. It says, With Yunmen's staff, do not act in vain. Yunmen lived uh, in the 9th and 10th centuries in China. And he's famous as being particularly crude. So, He has two famous references. One, a student asked, what is Buddha? To which Yunmen replied, a shit-wiping stick. If there's any kind of scatological language at all, you know it's probably a Zen talk. But then there's this staff. 
And this is in reference to the Buddha's birth. Yunmen, well, the Buddha, the story is that the Buddha emerged basically as a toddler. It's a very disturbing story. And he stood up right away, and then he said, He alone between heaven and earth is Buddha. It's great. And what Yunmen says is, if I had been there and that kid had popped out and put his arms like this and said, I alone between heaven and earth and Buddha, I would have killed him with my staff and I would have fed him to my dog. (laughs) It's more disturbing if you have kids. But he isn't putting up with this. He's not taking any any of this this glorified vision of the Buddha. He's throwing it out. This is, you know, we hear this phrase, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. That's this. But much, much, much more graphic. And in a way, more personal. He's choosing a place in time and saying, if only I could have been there to knock that arrogant look off of his face. But why? On the Buddha's birthday, when we celebrate it as a birthday, we we have a statue of the baby Buddha, and he's like this. And we pour sweet tea over it, and we put flowers all around it. It's beautiful. It's very nice. And children come, and they offer flowers, and they offer tea, and it's, it's wonderful. That's one side of the practice. But this is the other side. Daichi is talking about this guy, this guy named Buddha, and he's saying he was trouble. And the story of him is trouble. The way that we talk about him in our heads is trouble. If that story separates us from engaging in the way that we have to engage, if that story stops us or slows us down or makes us meek, because it is too fantastical and the Buddha is too amazing and we could never do what he did, then that story needs to be erased. It needs to be burned from the pages of the book. This poem is saying, grab the real Buddha. And throw out the rest. So we look toward the day of the Buddha's enlightenment and we look at this moment sitting beneath the tree and we talk about it as if the universe is holding its breath and we talk about it as if the earth shook. And if that spurs us forward, that's a good story. And if that makes us believe that the Buddha is in any way different from us, then it's the most dangerous story in the world. It's the one we need to forget.
And so we gather on this day for this reason, and we all know why. And if we close our eyes, we can imagine this beautiful scene in some sort of fanciful version of India that we have in our minds. When I do, there's always just one tree, by the way, in my version of this story. Somehow there's just a tree out in the middle of nowhere. There's a little bit of a mound. Right. Why? <laughs> there's nothing else for a, in, the, in the visual range. It's nice and green grass. Where did he come from? I don't know. Which direction? But I can picture it so clearly. And I picture it almost as a cartoon. And he sits down and I see this character of Mara attacking and taunting. And the Buddha is there. And I think that if you're like most people, you have to wrestle with your own mind to make sure that the Buddha is human in your head. Not just in terms of his, his capacity, but his face. Because we are presented always with a picture of the Buddha that does not look like any person you've ever met. Right? Because he has all the fantastical signs of Buddhahood. So his ears are just so, and his hair is just so, and his eyes are just so. And if you saw that person walking down the street, you would feel something was very wrong. Right? And so he is reduced to a cartoon. He is reduced to someone that is not real. We have to remember that if he was real at all, then according to this story, he was fresh off of his first bath in five years. Right? He had almost certainly dreadlocks tied up on the top of his head. Right? He had a minimum of clothes. He was probably scarred because he had scarred himself over and over and over again, intentionally and unintentionally. And he would be morbidly thin. And the only thing we need to see on his face is determination. If we can see that, if we can make this story a true story, then there's something we can do with it. But if we can't, we need to let it go. It's always, always, always a possibility that for us to move forward in Buddhist practice, we must forget about the Buddha altogether. For some of us, he's too big an obstruction. He's too big a hurdle. I heard someone say once that if, you, if you're young and you want to play basketball and you imagine that 
success in basketball means being Michael Jordan. You'll never pick up the ball. You can't put it out there like that. And yet we, in this tradition, without any intention to do so, go far beyond that. And we imagine his radiant, glowing self. <laughs> right? And this kind of perfect, peaceful smile. And this voice that made you just want to listen forever. That person is the criminal because that is the one who steals the practice from us. I'll stop there. For more information about Zen, our practice, and how you can support and take part in our community, please visit zennovascotia.com.